Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we dig in deep to analyze the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. I'm Andy Nelson from thenextreel.com. And I'm Pete Wright, also from thenextreel.com. And we are back with more of Favreau's Iron Man. Today we dig into Minute 3, which starts with Tony spilling the deets about his Playboy lifestyle and ends with Tony left and abandoned in the Humvee with little Jimmy telling him to stay. Little Jimmy. Aww. You say it's so sweet. Like, it's so sweet. <laughs> Don't you? He's he's a very sweet little boy. Yes. Little Jimmy. Little, little Kevin Jimmy. Foster. I, I think that is the big lesson, actually, for me. In all seriousness, the way these guys change from these awestruck kind of fawning fanboys of Tony Stark to, you know, we're soldiers now. This is our job. And the way Tony, <laughs> like, tries to stay cool. As as he says, uh, wait, what do we got? What do we got? With total fear on his face is the best moment of this minute. <laughs> uh, it feels like we've been podcasting about this thing uh, for already, you know, about an hour. And man, has it taken a long time for stuff to actually happen. Well, you say that, <laughs> but here we are. We're, we're two and a half minutes into the film and stuff starts getting blown up. It does not take long. For this film to kick into action and i think that's actually a strength of the movie and i i'm actually looking forward to talking about in a couple more minutes um when when things shift a little bit um but for now i just i i'm thrilled that we're in the middle of this firefight in afghanistan as as people are getting killed we've got uh you know ramirez she's the first to die in the film she says contact left and then her door opens and she sort of falls to the ground and you kind of hear a grunt and i i know that you think maybe she got shot but in the back of my head she's still there she's alive <laughs> They didn't go back and get her. Can we make that happen? Wow, this is dark all of a sudden. Ramirez is just lying in the desert now. All your heroes are dead, Andy. I don't know if we've talked about that enough. So, yeah, Ramirez, the last line that she has in the film, contact left. The last thing she gets to say yeah. as she jumps out the door to her left and gets shot. <laughs> it's like maybe, maybe in hindsight, yeah. that was not a great idea. <laughs> maybe she should have gotten out that door. Uh, Ramirez, the only character who has no gift of hindsight. <laughs> Oh, dear. Uh, Pratt, he's the second to die. That's Garrett Noel's character. Um, yes. And he's the one who says, Jimmy, stay with Stark as he gets out. And then Stark watches him as he sets up on the uh, over the uh, the hood of the Humvee and then uh, gets taken down as the, the windshield gets kind of blown apart. And and uh, right. Stark has that great moment where he's like checking himself like, did I just get hit from that? And then Jimmy himself, the last out of the car, uh, who again very soldierly uh grabs stark's shoulder and says stay here and also jumps out of the car in the same direction that ramirez went to the left lessons not learned well we don't know he might have learned his lesson that's a good point we don't find out this this ends on quite a cliffhanger this minute yeah and it's interesting that the last thing that tony says to jimmy as jimmy gets out of the car is uh, he screams to him Give me a gun, which is so interesting because, yes, these are these military guys who are are going out to fight. And, and yes, we've seen Tony as this playboy, but he is a, a weapons manufacturer and that's his job. So it makes perfect sense for him to say, give me a gun. It's actually kind of surprising that he doesn't have a gun on him. I, I guess it is. But I think that's one of the things that, that lights me up about this minute is that we get to see Tony in an actual firefight in the first three minutes of the movie because he's the guy who doesn't look like he belongs there. 
right? He doesn't appear to be a guy who's equipped to be there. He's got the fine glassware with his drink. He's got the suit and the tie and the fancy glasses. He doesn't fit in that Humvee. He's very cool to those other guys. But when explosions start to erupt around him, you can see that sort of shock and awe on his face that he may not be, uh, he may truly not be living up to the promise of being able to truck there. You know, and and uh, I, I think that's really good because we have to be able to see him here. Uh, we have to be able to see some fear. We have to be able to see the the risk of his life uh, that we know is coming in order to buy the transformation from Tony Stark into Iron Man. Well, and we also have to remember the way that the film is structured at this point in the film, if you're walking into this without having any backstory, you don't know that he's a weapons manufacturer. It's a really right. interesting setup because we've got a very kind of odd scene with this kind of this rich playboy in this military Humvee driving through Afghanistan. It seems like, okay, so who are these guys babysitting is really the way that the film sets it up. We have no idea his backstory that is in weapons. And so it's actually a good point that that it might be a little more awkward if he did have a weapon on him. Yeah, I think so. You know, we should jump backward a little bit because we're talking about kind of the ending of the minute, but it actually starts finishing Pratt's uh, question that he had. Did Stark go 12 for 12 with last year's Maxim cover models? Again, very not hashtag me too. But still, I think this is actually a great conversation to have about setting up this this unlikable character that Stan Lee wanted to create that that was kind of against everything that comic readers would like back in the 60s because he was he was a military guy he was a, this this rich playboy it's it's not what people wanted to see and, and and that was kind of the challenge that he had for himself and his team is making this this unlikable character become a superhero and i think they do a great job giving that uh, job to robert downey jr in this scene in particular it's almost as much fun as the Walter White transformation. You know what I mean? Like if, if we could see him, uh, you know, the birth of a supervillain, in this case, the birth of a superhero, we have to see him at his worst. And in in so many ways, we have to see the sexism. We have to see that he's, uh, you know, that he's able to have these conversations and that his behavior uh, you know, lives up to those conversations later in the in the movie that I've maybe not seen. Who knows? Um, <laughs> and and so you know, we have to see that darkness in order to buy um, change. In order to make it actually, I think, hard for us to buy change. Because when that change is hard for us to rationalize, when we finally rationalize it, it actually, um, it, we actually, I think, have a stronger connection with it. Well, to that point, also, they, there's that save the cat dance that they're doing here. But you know, there's that screenwriting philosophy about, uh, you know, you can have a uh, as as nasty a protagonist uh, as you want in your film as long as they do something early on in the film that like saving a cat that your audience can connect with mm -hmm. and yes tony stark is kind of this obnoxious prat of a playboy and it, it's kind of everything you hate in in rich you know obnoxious uh, people like this um, but he's so charming. There's something so casual and charming and disarming that that the way that he warms up this this Jeep and makes it all of a sudden comfortable place to kind of have a conversation in. That's what it is that that is that saving the cat moment, I guess you could say. All right. Now, did you want to read any from the from the script that we have? That's actually a 
good point to bring up. We hadn't really talked about the writers for the movie yet, and I thought it would be worth bringing up. Um, the the draft that they ended up shooting with uh, was the Salmon draft. Um, the way that screenwriting works is once the script is locked, every time there's a revision, those revised pages get a different color. And there's uh, a set number of pages. It goes from the white draft to then it would go blue, pink, yellow, green, goldenrod, buff, salmon, cherry, tan. And then it starts repeating that color pattern. And this is actually the salmon number two draft, technically, uh, which was uh, the first draft was locked in Janu- on January 24th, 2007. The salmon number two draft sometime later than that. The buff number two, which is right before salmon number two, was May 9th. And Salmon number 2 is just listed as XXXX07. The draft was uh, credited on the front page as written by Matt Holloway and Art Markham. And that's an ampersand, meaning they collaborated together. And, not collaborating, uh, Mark Fergus and Hawk Ostby. That was another collaborating pair. Based on the Marvel comic, revisions by Matt Holloway and Art Markham, Mark Fergus and Hawk Ostby, and John August. And then current revisions by Mark Fergus and Hawk Ostby. So you can kind of get a a sense of how things unfolded there. But on IMDb, or uh, sorry, on the on the WGA uh, listing, John August gets no credit for uh, contributing to the film. I guess his, his writing contribution was not high enough. Well, that's all right. You know, he had big fish. <laughs> There's always big fish. I will always have big fish. Uh, I, I, I find it interesting. We wanted to talk a little bit about the writing, and and because this is a, a sequence where we get a, a little bit of a different uh, a different gag from Salmon too. The well, it's it's interesting, and just as far as the the photography gag, you know, and, and this goes to kind of a little bit of how this script was still they were still scrambling trying to get all the pages you know finished of all these different drafts as they were uh, in production, trying to kind of finalize it and figure it out, and so Favreau really allowed some some uh, improv on set. And uh, Robert Downey Jr., of course, is one of those guys who just is natural at that sort of stuff. And a moment that exemplifies that is when Jimmy asks if he can uh, have his picture taken with him. And uh, we get a totally different conversation between the script and what happens in the movies. Pratt actually asks if he can take a picture with him. And Tony says, are you aware that Native Americans believe photographs steal a little piece of your soul? And then there's a beat. He says, not to worry. Mine's long gone. Fire away. And it's that fire (laughs) away that actually leads us into this massive explosion after the photo is taken. Right. That's the last line. And then the explosion hits and the windshield blows uh, up into this fireball. I think that's that's really interesting. Uh, It's an interesting change. I do like the the gag, the way it plays out uh, better with the gang sign. Put it down. That's okay. Put it up. I don't want to, you know, I actually think that's um, that's funnier. Well, plus the whole MySpace gag, which is uh, very timely. Yes. Uh, I think it's just so funny. I was, I was reading about MySpace. Um, it was launched in 2003. And then it was actually uh, from 2005 until early 2008. It was the most visited social networking site in the world, attracting 75.9 million unique visitors a month at its 2008 peak, shortly after which it was overtaken by Facebook. And uh, this came, film came out the summer of 2008. So it's just funny that this this line in the film hits right as uh, MySpace peaks and Facebook takes over. Wow. Wow. 
and what's really funny about that is that coming on this movie 10 years later now that joke's actually funny or now i should say it's actually a joke yeah right right isn't it funny what time does (laughs) it totally is yeah because back then saying i don't want to see this on your myspace page that's not the joke the joke was i'm just kidding throw 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 up your gang signs that's right you know that that kind of was the joke but now the whole myspace thing is just as funny (laughs) that's i think that's a riot uh so favreau we we talked about Favreau a little bit uh, yesterday. Favreau's an interesting guy. Uh, you know, it was it, it's one of those things we we talked about him not necessarily having a, a logical, uh, you know, place here in early in the Marvel universe, but in fact he did. He was in Daredevil. Yeah, he was actually in it, and it's funny that uh, that that just didn't hit uh, click with either of us. That oh yeah, he actually had been. Uh, foggy in the 2003 daredevil film and that's where he met um the marvel team and avi arad and uh became kind of a you know had an opportunity to express his passion for it and here we are i i think it's great even though and, and it's a funny thing about that movie in particular that it doesn't seem to have the the sort of uh the legs of history in this universe but there it did some things really um, some really smart things around that superhero, even though it, it wasn't an altogether terrific film. Uh, and uh, I, I miss it a little bit. Don't know if I could say that, but I don't know enough about the Daredevil character or kind of that world to say, oh, they did that well or not well. Well, they clearly went back and, and fixed the problems they thought they had with the, their Netflix partnership. Yeah. But uh, yeah, uh, anyhow, it was interesting. And it's interesting to see that that, is, that happens to be the door that, that Favreau kicks through, kicks in to get into, into the Marvel sphere. As a as a supporting character, yeah, in one right. of their lesser, it could happen films. to anyone, <laughs> right? Uh, the now aff- I want to see. Uh, let's see who who is one of the lesser. Uh, maybe it'll be Aquaman. He'll be directing the next big, right? The final breakout <laughs> for the real DCU. <laughs> uh, the effects in this sequence are uh, wow. They look uh, they look hot. Very hot. Yeah, this is. Uh, we're seeing some actual uh, fireballs here. It's it's nice to see that it's not all just CG, but we actually are getting some stuff blowing up, and it's nice. I think the effects team, um, you know, they clearly are having a good time, and it's a it's a great surprising moment in the minute here when when all of a sudden we get this. Uh, you know, we're we're totally not paying attention to kind of what's happening out in front because they're arguing about the camera. And all of a sudden, the vehicle in front just totally um, blows up. And it's a fantastic, uh, you know, cut, a series of cuts to kind of exemplify that. And I, you know, we, we don't get out of the Jeep, uh, the Humvee here really a whole lot. But I think what they do effectively through this whole firefight, and this is something that we'll definitely see in the next minute. It, this is kind of an indie war scene, right? We stay with Tony. And because of that, we don't really get this sense of the scope. But through the sound design and everything... It feels like we're in the thick of it. It does. Do we know who uh, who was responsible for these practical effects? I mean, I know it's the usual. It's the usual house, you know. I ILM, the embassy, the orphanage, uh, New Deal Studios. It really does give us a, a a sense of war zone. And what I think is super interesting about this particular one is, at the time, the great fear of driving across Afghanistan were these, you know, improvised explosive devices, were these kind of, uh, you know, these attacks that come out of nowhere, were these, you know, great surprises. And 
this is one of them, right? This is the thing that we get to sort of live through. I think it's it, it makes it really scary. It really does. And, and they do a great job of making it feel that way. And I don't know who is responsible for the practical effects on set. Yeah. I, you know, I'm just trying to go through the, I mean, it's, it's a ridiculously long list and so many people are credited as special effects technician. Yeah. There are a few like special effects uh, foremen and maybe it's them like Eric Cook. He was one Todd Jensen as another one. I don't know if, if they are the ones who are really in charge of all of this sort of stuff and the pyro effects and all of that. But um, it is a huge effects team when you get into these sorts of projects. And um, they're, you know, I guess they're doing a great job with what they are, uh, what they're responsible for. Well, here we go. That would be John P. Kaizen, pyrotechnician. Oh, yeah. There Look you at go. him. Ka- Kazin? 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 Yeah. I don't know. Chazin. He is is the pyro man. He's the pyro man. He's done a lot of stuff. And in fact, it looks like we're going to talk about him again uh, in about six years. (laughs) Looking forward to it. (laughs) You know, the only other thing that I was going to throw out there is I was trying to figure out. I I don't think I ever got a good sense of where Tony was in this convoy. And I think watching these minutes, I finally figured out that he's in the middle one, which I guess makes sense. Yeah. Uh, it's a convoy of five vehicles, and of course, he'd be right in the in the middle. And the first vehicle that we see get blown up is the is the second vehicle. The first and last vehicles in the convoy we've already seen have men sticking out the tops, manning the guns, and uh, so that's that was my clue to kind of try figuring out what's going on here. <laughs> well, it's good, and it gives you a sense of space in a future minute. I can't wait to see that minute. I can't either. Well, everybody, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to the show for free at marvelmovieminute.com. Join us over in our Discord chat room and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Next Reel. And if you like what we do and want to support us and get some cool stuff, become a patron over at patreon.com slash The Next Reel. That's it, everybody. Until next time, true believers. True believers.